Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa Namo tasa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhasa So good afternoon everyone. We've come to the third day of this retreat on the Four Noble Truths. So we're going to begin discussing the last of the Four Noble Truths today. That's the Noble Eightfold Path, which the Buddha calls the path leading to the cessation of Dukkha. I thought that, just like on the first day, how I came to start by introducing the Four Noble Truths as a whole, it would be good to do the same thing for the Noble Eightfold Path. Now, we have very limited time to discuss the Noble Eightfold Path. In fact, we have an entire retreat that's dedicated to the Noble Eightfold Path. If you really wanted to, you could even split each of those uh, factors of the path into their own retreat. You have a mindfulness retreat, you have an effort retreat, you have a right view retreat, all these different things. So you can come back um, eight, seven or eight more times and we can do each of those retreats separately. If you want to sign up, get signing up for those, right? So, the Buddha describes the Four Noble Truths, I mean, I'm sorry, the Noble Eightfold Path as something that's to be developed. That means that we're not just supposed to sit there and learn about the Noble Eightfold Path and think about it, but we're supposed to put it into practice. <clears throat> supposed to apply it, not only on sitting in our cushion or doing walking meditation, but throughout every waking moment of our lives. The Noble Eightfold Path has something to offer. It has, it's applicable in any situation, no matter what we're doing, formal meditation or not. The Buddha describes this Noble Eightfold Path with um, two similes among others. 
The first thing he does is he calls the Noble Eightfold Path the stand of the mind. Just like how if you have a precious object, like it's say um, some kind of relic or a vase, something fragile, and you want to put it on display, you make sure you put it on a very sturdy table, a very sturdy stand. Otherwise, it might get knocked over and broken very easily because the stand gives out or it's not in a good position or whatnot. In the same way, a mind supported by the fact of the Noble Eightfold Path is strong, sturdy, stable, on its way to being free from dukkha. <clears throat> this leads us then to the next simile. The Buddha says that just as various rivers um, slope downwards from a mountain into the river Ganges or whatever river, so too the mind on the Noble Eightfold Path slopes and trends towards Nibbana. That's the point of the Noble Eightfold Path, to lead the practitioner to ultimately Nibbana, to the end of suffering, to the end of Dukkha. So these two similes kind of set the framework for what exactly the Noble Eightfold Path is, the, um, the intended goals of it, and so on. It's also famously described as the middle way, or the middle path. I'm sure many people have heard that description before. You look on the Wikipedia of Buddhism or something, it's probably the first thing you see. Buddhism is the middle way. But it's important to clarify what that means. What is the middle way? What is, it, what is in between such that we're going in this middle? And there are in fact many instances in this practice where taking the middle road is seen to be the best choice. For example, let's say we're talking about faith and confidence in the triple gem. You have two extremes. You can either have paralyzing skepticism to such a degree that you never even want to bother looking into the Dhamma, no, we want to look and practicing it. You just read about it and you say, no, that's not it. I just deny it immediately. And on the other side of that, of course, we have blind faith, people who have confidence in whatever for substandard reasons, because it's their tradition, because their family does it, because their friends do it, because it uh, feels good or feels right, some kind of nebulous term like that, instead of with a thorough investigation of that teaching. And so we have something in the middle that we follow, something between being so skeptical that we don't even bother trying and being so open to it that we don't even question it. There's somewhere in between. That's one of many examples of going, treading down the middle in this, uh, in this practice, in this teaching. Now, the two main ways that the middle path is described as middle, as given by the Buddha, <coughs> are um, as follows. The first one, and this parallels the story of the Buddha um, going to his enlightenment, is practicing the Noble Eightfold Path between sensual indulgence and uh, self-mortification. You read the story of the Buddha, for example, in the 26th Sutta of the Majjhima Nikaya, that's one of a few places, you see that he started out in the lap of luxury as a prince, he had anything you could ever possibly think of wanting in terms of pleasures of the senses. But ultimately, because he started reflecting on aging, illness, and death, he saw that all those possessions of his would not last, that they could not save him from his inevitable fate, that they could not provide any refuge or shelter for him. 
So becoming disenchanted with those things, he set out to practice asceticism in the, uh, it's called the Samana tradition of that time. Basically, you know, wandering recluses and contemplatives and meditative people attempting to find enlightenment, whatever they thought that might be. So the ones that he joined at some point were these kinds of extreme, extreme ascetics that you can even sometimes still find in <clears throat> modern Jainism and certain parts of Hinduism. People who, you know, eat extremely small amounts of food, if anything at all. Like uh, the Buddha goes into the listing of all the extreme austerities that he did in order to try and purify himself. Not eating, not lying down, not wearing clothes, not bathing, all these uh, various different things and even more extreme than that. But the uh, specifics escape me right now. And this stems from this idea, which is somewhat prevalent in some spiritual traditions, that pain is purifying. I, if I deny myself any pleasure and just hurt myself, in a way of speaking, not like you know stabbing yourself in the body, but rather just doing these things that are extremely painful, there's a purifying aspect of that. That's why you see, for example, ex well, I don't think they do it anymore, hopefully, but you know, in the medieval times, some Christian monks would flog themselves because they wanted to deny themselves pleasure because they thought that made them closer to God or um, something like that. But what the Buddha came to realize is that by doing that, one's kind of working on the wrong thing. Because instead of working on purifying the mind of being addicted to pleasure and avoiding pain, all you're doing is just kind of, uh, <clears throat> you're not getting to the root of the problem when you just try and focus on being in pain as often as possible or by doing these extreme things. And suffice to say, eating very small amounts of food doesn't do anything in terms of understanding the nature of suffering, understanding the nature of experience. And in fact, what oftentimes happens is the more you deny yourself, you, you, still, you, know, you still have the tendencies to craving within you, the craving can just grow stronger if the root of the craving is not, um, is not attacked and dug out properly. So the Buddha saw that neither of these two extremes was satisfactory. And so the famous story goes that he was, you know, sitting under a tree and accepted a um, rather lavish meal from a lay supporter. And they called it uh, milk rice, which is like milk with uh, coconut milk in it, a very kind of rich and filling thing. Because at this point he was extremely emaciated, he needed some food. And the, his brothers in the holy life at that time, these other five ascetics who came to be his first disciples later on, thought that he had returned to the lavish lifestyle because he took this milk rice. But what having that did is it gave him the bodily strength for striving. Before, it was very, as you can imagine, I'm sure, you eat one grain of rice a day, it's going to be very hard to put forth effort. A, because the mind saying food, food, food. <laughs> And also, just because your energy levels are probably extremely low, at least I imagine, I've never done it myself. <clears throat> so there's, but on the other hand, at the same time, the Buddha wasn't, was still restraining his senses with regards to the food. It's not like he started indulging in the food. He started, he was eating the amount necessary for his body to be supported, but there wasn't the same you know, delighting and lavishing and relishing in the food. 
that's what we chant every time, every meal time. Patisanka yonasopinda patang, so and so on. I'm sure you've read the English. I eat this food not for pleasure, not for intoxication, not for beautifying, so on, but to support this body to live the holy life, to give rise to no new painful feelings and get rid of presently arisen painful feelings, i.e., hunger. And so there's this middle way in between those two things, and that's applicable for. Um, us as well. Whenever we, we inevitably are going to encounter pleasant things in the world, the question will be whether we are um, giving in to sensuality when we encounter these things. So it's not a question of locking yourself in a closet in order to avoid any kind of stimulus at all, but rather understanding why the mind leaps out at these things in the first place. Now, of course, there are reasonable limits to this. I, I don't suggest you, you know you go have a meditation retreat in a casino in Atlantic City, for example. There are, you know, reasonable limitations on this. But ultimately, yeah, we're always going to come in contact with pleasant things of the senses. There's, there's no getting around it. But what is optional is the sensuality. The Buddha mentions that the pleasant things of the world are not a man's or a woman's sensuality. The sensuality of that person is the, the greed, the delight, the lust therein. You remove that, all the pleasant things of the world just kind of stand there. We're not affected by them anymore. We're not drawn to them by craving, thirst, clinging, what have you. And the other way that Buddha mentions the path is middle is in regards to the ideas of self. He says that it's in between two extremes. The first is what we call eternalism, the idea that the self or the soul or whatever is permanent, everlasting, <clears throat> eternal, that it, well, some people say, some religions say it just goes to heaven and just stays there forever. Others, such as like Hinduism, say the soul continually, you know, transmigrates from life to life and it stays the same from each moment and from each birth. And so there's this idea in these traditions of something at the core of our being that doesn't change, that is me, mine, myself, essentially. Sometimes they call it in some New Age traditions the true self or pure being or things like that. On the other side is what's called annihilationism, which is the typical scientific materialistic view of things that you know we are born and the body goes through its um, process of aging and such, and eventually the body breaks apart, and that's the death of the self. So an annihilationist person says there is this self, but it is annihilated at death. So it's not in a, that kind of way permanent, yet at the same time they're still taking it as self, but what they don't recognize is that there's an inherent contradiction there. If this thing, whatever body, for example, were us, then we could say, don't die, and the body would listen, because it would be ours, we would be the master over it. As I mentioned on the first day, whenever we think of something as self, there, there's the inherent thought that we're the masters of that thing, that we have control over its fate. In between this, the Buddha teaches paticca samupada, dependent origination, which is essentially saying that Eternalism and annihilationism, both those kinds of schools of thinking, both take this self that appears at face value. That is to say that 
they say, yes, there is the self. It's a real, established, true thing. And from there, they run with it. They start speculating about the nature of it. You know, um, what, what kind of qualities does it have? Is it, lo is it material, immaterial? Is it percipient? Is it non-percipient? Does it involve consciousness? Does it have feelings? And all these kinds of different, um, um, what's the word? Um, analytical kind of thinkings about the nature of the self. <clears throat> but what, the, what dependent origination says is that the sense of self arises dependent on causes and conditions. Hence, it's undermined by those very things as well. Hence, whatever appears here is impermanent. Hence, it can't be self. So the middle path between these two things is recognizing that self is in fact just a deception, that it's something born of ignorance, that is not A, necessary for there to be experience, and B, that it's not good to have it there, because when, so long as we take things in this way, there is going to be dukkha. And so these are the two primary examples that the Buddha gives in talking about the middle way and why it is the middle way itself. So ultimately then the goal of the middle way is to give rise to understanding, to give rise to knowledge about the Four Noble Truths, <coughs> about the other aspects of the Dhamma. <coughs> now there are also, we could say, two different Noble Eightfold paths. Um, for lack of a better term, these are not terms used in the suttas, but they don't have any issue with them. There's a mundane one and a supra-mundane one. And the difference between those two is a question of um, what ripens from that path. What is the end of that path? So this mundane Noble Eightfold Path, the Buddha describes it in the Mahachatari Sutta, which is uh, somewhere in the last 50 of the Majjhimanikaya, I don't remember. Um, he says that the, this mundane Noble Eightfold Path ripens in merits and acquisition, i.e. that one who practices that Noble Eightfold Path can expect to attain good merit, a good rebirth, acquiring um, you know, good things as a result of their actions. But the super mundane path, on the other hand, ripens in Nibbana. So we have quite a stark difference there. And the difference that what differentiates these two is the first factor of the Noble Eightfold Path, which is samaditti, or right view. Whether we have the right, the kind of right view that we have determines what kind of path we are practicing on. So, it'll be fitting then to speak in some detail about right views and well, wrong views. We have to understand both sides of the coin. So this mundane right view, we can call it almost seeking the path. We're seeking the path to Nibbana, and we set certain conditions down to make that search hopefully more fruitful, more streamlined, easier. So the Buddha describes mundane right view in this kind of way. The easiest way to discuss it would actually be to talk about its opposite, what would be a wrong view. So. The Buddha states as follows that this is the wrong view directly counter to a mundane right view. There is nothing given, nothing offered, nothing presented in charity, no fruit or result of good and bad actions, no this world, no other world, no mother, no father, no beings who are reborn spontaneously, 
No ascetics and Brahmins faring and practicing rightly in the world who, having realized this world and the other world for themselves by direct knowledge, make them known to others. This person consists of the four great elements. When one dies, the earth returns to and merges with the earth body. The water returns and merges with the water body, so on and so on with the fire body and the air. Uh, four men with the beard. Four men carry away the corpse. The funeral orations last as far as eternal ground. The bones whiten. Burnt offerings end with ashes. Giving is a doctrine of fools. When anyone asserts the doctrine that there is giving and the like, it is empty, false prattle. Fools and the wise are alike cut off and perish with the break of the body. After death, they do not exist. So there's quite a mouthful and quite a few different things in this statement, but what it essentially boils down to is the idea that <clears throat> our choices don't have a particularly strong effect on our outcome. It says in the end here that the fools and the wise are cut off and perish with the body. That is to say that they end up in the same place according to this view. And what this kind of does, it negates the entirety of the holy life. If it's suddenly that, well, you can do whatever you want and end in the same place, well, then suddenly practicing the Dhamma is kind of a gratuitous thing. I mean, sure, you can do it and it's still relatively pleasurable, all things considered, but ultimately it would be equally as valid to, you know, go party for 50, 60 years of your life and then you die and you're in the same place, no problem. So this kind of view, besides being wrong, is just negates this practice, negates um, the path in a way of speaking. And likewise with these other um, considerations, there is nothing given, nothing offered, no ascetics and Brahmins who understand this world, the other world, no rebirth, no result in, of action, and so on. So the Buddha describes mundane right view, in essence, as acknowledging the fruits and the fruits of action. That is to say that our choices do have an effect, that if we make the unskillful choices, there will be the result of that. If we make skillful choices, there will be the result of that as well. More specifically, it refers to taking responsibility for our actions and choices. I'm sure we've all had this happen. We had something happen to us and we got very upset about it. And what happens? We immediately blame something external to us. We say, he did that to me, he said that to me, she did that to me, she said that to me. This happened, that happened, and that's why I'm suffering. But this is just deluding ourselves. Sure, other things in the world can trigger these things, but at the root of it all, what causes us our own suffering is his mind, the mind that has ignorance and craving. So when we have this kind of, I'll call it authentic attitude, we take responsibility for our mind and mental states. Instead of shifting the blame away towards others, we take the responsibility, we take the weight of saying that, you know, this unwholesome thing arose in my mind because of my lack of knowledge, my lack of understanding, my defilements, instead of blaming outside things. And this is often difficult, even sometimes uncomfortable. That's why we look outside to blame our problems on something in the first place, because it absolves us of our responsibility. It absolves us of this burden. 
Of course, it actually doesn't do that, but it feels like that, at least in the short term. Whereas if we take full responsibility for our actions, for our choices, we have to bear the weight of that. You see this exemplified in you know, typical choice paralysis. We hate the idea of having to choose between two options that don't, aren't black and white, clear as day, the best options, for the reason that we're afraid if we make the right choice, we'll have to live with the results. But ultimately, we have no choice but to make choices. Even not making a choice is still making a choice. Doing nothing is a choosing to do nothing. And so, no matter what we do, we have to be quite firm and say, I am choosing to do, do, act, speak, or think in this way, and whatever results of it will come, I have to own those things. If there's the wrong results, I'll change in the future. If the right results, I'll keep doing it. And so it brings the the locus of control back to our minds, back to us. And what's further, it's a very powerful position. You know, you think about people who blame everything else for their problems and don't look in their own minds. It's really actually a very pitiful position. Those people put themselves at the mercy of the world. And the world's not kind to them either. The world will trample all over those kinds of people doing all these you know, unfortunate things will happen to them. It's inevitable. These things happen to everyone. But such people who look in this way, they're just going to go along with their mind too. Lament, sorrow, beat their breast, and so on. But when we take the position of taking responsibility in this way, it's really a position of power, a position of strength. Instead of being at the mercy of the world, we say, well, the world can do what it wants, but I have the ability to not be um, affected by that. I have the ability to go beyond that, but it's all on me. And that's the scary thing about that idea too, that all the burden of the responsibility of shaping our minds, of understanding our minds, of freeing ourselves from suffering is on us as individuals. So I can't enlighten you, you can't enlighten me, that's not possible. We can guide each other, but ultimately the work comes to the individual. And essentially this is this mundane right view, because without that, well, we're just not going to even acknowledge our problems in the first place, acknowledge the problems of the mind. And there's just no chance for having any progress so long as we do that. Um, as for the supra-mundane right view, that is essentially an understanding of the uh, Four Noble Truths. So it goes beyond just taking responsibility for our actions, but rather it turns into insight and understanding of the mind. We spoke about this on the first day, but right view is also given in two other major ways. The first one is right view of dependent origination, of paticca samuppada. This doesn't necessarily mean having the full understanding of all the 12 links of that, but rather just basically the principle of dependent origination that the Buddha gives, which is with the arising of this, this arises. With the ceasing of this, this ceases. This is in essence the simile of the two sticks that I mentioned. Things arise with a condition and cause. They arise propped up and supported by other things not in a 
necessarily temporal way, i.e., okay, at second one, it, this comes, at second two, this comes, but in a, an almost structural way, i.e., that the structure of our experience is given in such a way that things are supported by each other, and all the things have necessary conditions, necessary correlatives, i.e., that they don't arise in the first place if the other thing isn't arisen alongside it. And so you see the impermanence of both sticks, and you see that neither of them can actually be a permanent, lasting thing. So this principle, seeing it, is in fact what the Buddha calls um, stream entry. So for those unfamiliar, stream entry is one of the stages of awakening, they're called. I.e., there are four stages of awakening, stream entry, once return, non-return, and full enlightenment. So a stream enter has, we can call it, partially attained enlightenment, i.e., that they've cut off certain of the, some of the fetters that were binding them to continued becoming, to continued birth but yet at the same time they still have ignorance within them. It's a rather complex situation actually, there's a mix of you know, ignorance and knowledge in them. But anyway, that's the, the knowledge that the stream enterer gains, but it calls the arising of the Dhamma eye, not like a physical eye or the third eye, that's something different, but rather the arising of understanding this principle of Dhamma. And it's quite apt that they're called the stream enterer. And we think about the simile of the Noble Eightfold Path as a stream. The stream enterer has entered the stream of the truly Noble Eightfold Path. And so they're just riding the river towards Nibbana. And that's why for a stream enterer, their enlightenment is inevitable. It's just a matter of how much effort do they put in, how quick does their understanding continue to develop. But they've reached a point with this super mundane right view that they, uh, they can't fall back from that. You know, once you've had the right understanding, you can't delude yourself back to something wrong, at least not in this context. Otherwise, that would be pretty bad. <laughs> so they have that, uh, they have that um, <clears throat> power in them that they're destined for enlightenment, destined for Nibbana. And that's because they've seen the Four Noble Truths. They've seen dependent origination to the extent necessary to overcome a certain amount of the fetters. Anyway, we could talk about that for a whole Dhamma talk too, but we should continue. And this is all opposed to, instead of the wrong views of the inefficacy of action, the lack of rebirth and so on, is in opposition to the wrong views about the self and the world. The Buddha describes this as atta-chalokacha, doctrines and views about the self and the world. And so various thinkers, ascetics, philosophers, so on, have various ideas of the self and the world. That's essentially what a great bulk of philosophy is, thinking about the nature of the self and the world. But Suffice to say, what none of these things accomplish is they don't see the, the nature of self. They think about what the self is, but they don't see the dependently arisen nature of the self in the first place. Hence, they also do not see a way beyond that, a way to remove that and hence remove suffering. 
all these views are given in the first sutta of the Diga Nikaya, that's the Brahmajala Sutta. And it's a quite interesting read. You see all these different views of the self and the world that come from various meditative experiences. People interpreting meditative experiences in incorrect ways, missing a certain aspect of it. Um, and this is why the Buddha's instruction is so valuable. Without it, we could you know, attain states of sublime concentration and peace in our practice, but we may still have wrong views about how that's happening in the first place, the nature of how we experience those peaceful states. Hence, when we have the Buddha to point out how it is, we have a benchmark, so to say. Our experience presents itself in one way. The Buddha's word can often be countered that, and we say, oh, I think I need to investigate this. And we investigate the words given to us, and they're a guide towards this right view. That's essentially the, the task of those who are not stream enters, to attain this right view. And what's needed to do that is really drilling these questions on the Dhamma. If you think about it, any one sutta, mostly, is a meditation in and of itself. Because as I mentioned on the first day, the Dhamma is Opanayaka. It leads one forward. And so the people who listened to the Buddha, they weren't just you know, sitting there twiddling their thumbs, dreaming into space or something. They were paying careful, wise attention to their experience as they listened to the words, to have it edify their own understanding as well. So each of these things is really a meditation. And so in order to attain this right view, we really have to drill these ideas. This is made all that much more complex by the fact that we can't just simply list off our wrong views. It's not so simple. I can't think to myself and say, what are my wrong views? Because if I knew my wrong views, I wouldn't have the wrong views because I'd know they were wrong in the first place. So the situation's a bit complex. But we read the Dhamma, we read the suttas, we listen to teachers and so on, and we, we look in our experience and try to confirm that. Is that the case? Is it so? And we repeat it again and again and again until we reach a point where we either say, actually, that's not correct. I need to understand this in a different way. Or um, we come to realize that this is true. And not only is it true, but it must be true. It's the only thing that could be true. Nothing else could be the case. And there are, of course, various examples of how we can apply this. But essentially, it's what we're doing when we practice mindfulness. We're um, drilling through wrong views, attempting to see things as the Buddha did. Because when we see things in that way, it's the ending of suffering. So this right view is really, in some ways, the most important factor of the path because it distinguishes the mundane and the supermundane. It distinguishes whether one is a noble disciple or attempting to become a noble disciple. And so it's no surprise that it's given first in the Noble Eightfold Path. It really has a center of strong importance. And we can also describe right view in terms of the other path factors, i.e. knowing what right mindfulness is, is one's right view. Knowing what right action is, is one's right view, to, the, to that extent at the very least. <clears throat> so we could say understanding what the Noble Eightfold Path is, is our right view. But again, this is not in the simply I read it, I memorized it kind of way. 
It means drinking the, drinking the Dhamma, following that path to the extent where you, the path is clear to you. That's what the stream enter also has. They see the way to Nibbana. It's open to them. It's as though there's a, you know, a busy set of highways. There's a, you know, perhaps all going parallel and veering off in different directions. And we don't know which path, which uh, road is leading to our destination. So we try various roads. We say, oh, that didn't go anywhere. That didn't go anywhere. Eventually, we get on a road and we travel that road a bit to the point where we see our destination off in the distance. And we say, oh, this is the road. This is the path. That's their knowledge. That's why they're called, we can also call them path enterers. They've entered the right path towards Nibbana. So we spent a, wow, a lot of time on right view, but I think that was justified because, again, it is so extremely important. After that comes Sama Sankapa. This can be translated as right right intention or right thought. And this is threefold. Nakama Sankapa, Avyapada Sankapa, Avihingsa Sankapa, which means the intentions of renunciation, the intentions of uh, non-cruelty, the intentions of non-harming. So if we look at this from a mundane point of view, the mundane right view, we have the right view that we are responsible for our own minds. And so then we develop and say, I need to develop right, skillful intentions in my mind. Those being intentions of renouncing, specifically with regards to you know, sensual pleasures, restraining the senses, and not harming other beings for the reason that these things are unskillful. And we come to see these things as unskillful because we see the effect that they have on our minds, on our status, and those of others as well. How it just simply spreads suffering around like margarine on bread instead of drying it up, getting rid of it. It's just spreading suffering further and further when we lust after things, when we have anger and cruelty in our minds and so on. <clears throat> and this, of course, is also important for the reason that you may be familiar with the first um, two verses of the, the Dhammapada, which essentially go, all things are led by the mind. Mind is their master, mind is their maker. Actors speak with a, pure, a defiled or pure state of mind, and the results of that will come. I've paraphrased that a bit. But what it's saying is that all things start with the mind, i.e. one doesn't do unskillful actions of the body without having unskillful actions in, or thoughts in the mind. So the, mind the, the mental aspect of that precedes them. And obviously, the work of the Dhamma is done within the mind. It's not done in the gym, lifting and curling biceps or anything like that. It's the work of this is done in the mind, which means that we have to purify the mind. That's the goal of what we're doing here. And so by, at the very least, giving the determination to have right in intentions and right thoughts, we begin to cultivate that habit in our minds. And we begin to also understand more deeply, more closely, what is skillful, what is unskillful. It's easy enough to take those things that, you know, for word, you know, oh, the, they're skillful because the Buddha says so. But 
one has to attain the knowledge that things are skillful and unskillful, wholesome and unwholesome, because of the effect of benefiting or hindering the path to Nibbana, the path to freedom from suffering that they have. This is something that we have to see within our own experience. How unskillful actions lead to this, how skillful actions lead to that. Essentially, it's understanding action and its results, karma and its results. Not in the way of, you know, this happened in my next life because I did that, but rather even just seeing how it affects us here and now in this, in this given moment. How thoughts of ill will are painful. They're immediately painful here and now. When we see that, we're not going to get angry because we're going to be, well, why would I do that? It's painful. We only get angry because we don't see that clearly that anger is in fact painful because there's also this gratifying, pleasant aspect to the anger as well. The thoughts of specifically conceit, the idea that, you know, I'm right, he's wrong, I'm angry about it, I'm better than him, and so on. All those things prep up the anger further because they provide that pleasant aspect to it. And what's more, these right intentions also support the next three factors of the path that we'll talk about, which we can um, summarize under the term sila. Sila is the word for ethics or moral virtuous behavior. Essentially, it's taking upon ourselves guidelines and rules for our own conduct. And suffice to say, it's going to be extremely difficult to maintain these things properly when our minds are filled with lust, greed, anger, hatred. It's possible, but it's going to be an extremely tedious and um, de-energizing process. The mind, the mind wants to do one thing, but we're using our will to make the body do something else. It's kind of like you see people get angry, they clench their fists and grit their teeth so that they don't you know, burst out. It's a very painful situation and it can't last. So suffice to say, the focus always has to be firstly on the mind, but we inevitably must see also that not only does the state of the mind have an effect, but also the things external also have an effect on our own well-being, on the well-being of others. So sila is generally uh, split into three categories. There's uh, right speech, right action, and right livelihood. You can see these exemplified in the various kinds of precepts that we administer. For example, the five precepts the eight lifetime precepts, which some people may have taken here, and the, uh, even the eight monastic precepts, although those are a bit more of a you know, <clears throat> bigger thing to take upon oneself. Now, one key thing before we even start talking about these is that all these kinds of behaviors, precepts, so on, they can't be taken just because, you know, oh, someone said so, Bhanteji told me to, and I like Bhanteji, so I'm going to do it. I mean, that's, that's, a better that's better than not doing it in the first place. But ultimately, we have to come to do these things because we see, again, wholesome and unwholesome. And we see the effect of these things. And so we say, yeah, if I do this, it's going to have a bad result. So I'm going to make the determination not to do that. You work with that long enough and you gain understanding, then you won't do those unwholesome things anymore. That's essentially enlightenment. So the first one is right speech. 
Now, speech is, in my opinion, one of the most difficult precepts. The other ones, like you know, abstaining from killing, abstaining from stealing, I think I, I, I assume most people in this room follow those things. Maybe you, right? Maybe you crush insects or something. Maybe you kill rats with poison, and that is unwholesome. But you're you're not going around killing people. I assume you're not going around stealing. I don't think most people do that. Of course, if they do, they should stop. But if you're, if you're here, I think you're okay there, at least uh, in that regard. But speech, on the other hand, I can guarantee we all struggle with speech. Speaking rightly, speaking properly, speaking kindly, speaking truthfully. And that's because human interaction is a messy thing. It's very difficult. It's not easy to predict. And it's so easy to get emotionally involved in all that, too. One sutta that I, I uh, always remember and I quite like, I don't remember the context of the name of it though, but I kind of remember this tidbit of it, is the Buddha compares the human to an elephant. He says, the elephant is open enough, but the human is a tangle. That is to say that, you know, you, an elephant's a rather predictable creature. If it's a tamed elephant. You know, you ha give it a command, it does it. You, it has, you give it a food reward, it stimulates the behavior further like training a dog, it's a pretty simple thing. But predicting humans' behavior, it's a lot more complicated. They'll often do things that are against their best interest, even if there is a perceived reward because of the various ways that, um, you know, the mind deceives us and does all these kind of crazy tricks. So, but suffice to say, giving the dedication to right speech is very important for the reason that when we speak Rightly, our interactions with others are going to be more peaceful, more um, friendly, as opposed to if we spoke harshly and untruthfully to others, then suddenly we're in conflict with others. And when we're in conflict with other people, that's a weight on the mind, because we start thinking about the conflict. We said, we, we sit, try and sit and meditate and we say, oh, he said this to me, I can't believe it, so on and so on. The mind keeps going, going on and on. But when we practice right speech, we have less likelihood that you know, people will be hostile towards us because they see that we speak truthfully, that we speak kindly, that we don't speak maliciously, that we don't gossip. Um, and further than that also, even speaking wrongly in and of itself is a weight on the mind. For example, the most prominent um, precept regarding speech is abstaining from false speech, abstaining from lying. You think about lying, you, give a, you, you tell someone a lie and suddenly you've set up this intricate web for yourself because you, give, you lie once and you have to keep the story going. And so suddenly you have two stories in your mind, the actual truth and the lie you've created. And as people, you know, depending on the severity and largeness of the lie, that can go to, you know, insane um, <clears throat> insane states where you're lying to multiple people about multiple things and you're trying to keep the whole story straight in the meantime and it's an extraordinary burden on the mind never mind the fact that if you get caught you know there's going to be ramifications of that but even the idea of getting caught is a weight on the mind it gives rise easily to restlessness and anxiety and so on and so forth and further than that also, you know, in this practice, we're dedicated to seeing the truth, understanding the truth. 
And if we compromise that by you know, saying, well, well, I can lie in my speech, but I'll look for the truth in my mind, it's not going to work. We have to really immerse ourselves in truthfulness. Otherwise, well, we're just going to be hypocrites. And that's also a weight on the mind. So among other things, those are the good reasons to tell the truth. Even the Buddha gives a wonderful set of advice for speech. You know, there are certain um, um, characteristics of speech that we can look into in order to determine whether we should say it or we shouldn't say it. So for example, <clears throat> we can ask, is the speech truthful? If yes, then we can move forward. If no, then no. The Buddha never encourages lying of any kind whatsoever. But we can also go further and say, um, is this speech timely or untimely? You know, is it the right time to say this speech? Because it's not always the right time. There's various reasons why. You know, other things are more pressing and you don't want to add fuel to the fire. The person's not quite in the state to hear it and so on. And so if something's true and untimely, it's probably not the right time to say it either. But if it's true and timely, we can move forward. We can also ask the question, is it beneficial? i.e., will the person we're speaking to benefit from hearing this? This is especially true with things like criticism. You know, a criticism can be true, but if the person's not ready to listen to it, well, it might have the opposite effect. They'll just get angry at you and angry at others, and then suddenly they're in a worse state than before. The Buddha would do this even with teaching people. He wouldn't he would refrain from speaking to certain things to certain people if he thought that it would have the wrong effect on them, that it wouldn't lead them to Nibbana, and so he chose to just uh, you know, change the subject or stay silent on that matter if it wouldn't lead the person forward. And finally, we can ask also, is this speech going to be welcome or unwelcome, pleasant or unpleasant for the person to hear? <coughs> <coughs> We can have a situation where something is truthful, where it's timely, where it's beneficial, but it's not pleasant. We call this, you know, hard medicine or hard love. Like a person may be ready, may need to hear this, but they're not going to like hearing it. And with regards to this kind of speech, the Buddha says we have to understand and develop understanding of the right time and place for these kinds of speech to determine, you know, depending on our relationship with the person, on our, uh, the state of that person at that time, various other things, whether that speech should be uttered at that moment in time or whether we should, you know, sit on it or wait. Because there's no, there's no lying in, you know, not saying anything. Um, there's no lying in, you know, saying now is not the right time to talk about this, let's talk about it later. That's just a means of making sure that the words are heard as they are intended, that they have the intended effect to them. And so for the rest of <coughs> right speech, there's three other precepts as well. That's abstaining from harsh speech, abstaining from malicious speech, abstaining from useless speech. So abstaining from harsh speech is essentially abstaining from that speech that the Buddha describes as border, within or bordering on anger. You know, when we have anger, our speech has a certain quality to it. It has a certain roughness to it. And so if we avoid speaking like that in the first place, then 
we may even have less tendency towards anger. I remember in college that it was very common for people to say the, the F word like every three words or so. You know, how was your day? It was effing great, man. This is effing so on and so forth. And it's kind of, I mean, I don't, there was no anger in the, that, I don't think. It was just kind of, you know, a habit they got from somewhere. But, you know, you get, then you think about when you're angry and you say effing this, effing that. It suddenly transfers over. Never mind the fact that people are going to know you as the guy or girl who, you know, speaks like a cretin or an uncultured person or something like that. And so in any case, it always has the... <laughs> I think I just insulted some friends from college. <laughs> uh, I didn't mean to do that. Anyway, they, they were good people despite that. Um, <clears throat> But we, we can undertake that, undertake speaking, you know, gently to people. Speaking harshly <clears throat> generally doesn't have the outcome we want in any case. People get on the defensive when we speak harshly. That doesn't mean you'll speak to them like little babies saying, okay, now it's time to do this, or something like that, like, you know, soft and fake, but rather with like a heart of understanding, a mind of understanding, or I should say a mind of goodwill towards them. And our speech will naturally be gentle when we do that. Of course, there is also time for, again, the tough love. But this shouldn't be in a harsh way. We always have to keep the benefit and well-being of us and the other person in mind, even if we are quite curt and direct. But that's different from being harsh as well. Malicious speech is abstaining from things like, you know, divisive speech and gossiping. Um... Suffice to say, there's, there's nothing wholesome about that. All it does is make divisions between people. And when we make divisions between people, it's all that much more difficult for us to live in harmony and communion with other people, which means it's harder for us to find the peace within the world to practice the Dhamma in the first place. Suffice to say, it's very hard, and again, a burden on the mind, to practice when we have all these kinds of interpersonal conflicts going on because of our own actions especially. If these things just come to us and we've been maintaining our speech, that's one thing. But if we're also involved in um, that cycle, then that's a burden on our minds as well. You know, we can have people speak to us harshly, but we don't have to speak back harshly to them. There's one rather famous sutta where the Buddha is approached by a certain Brahmin and the Brahmin insults him and berates him and so on. And the Buddha, is, he's free from anger, so he doesn't get upset, but he gives the Brahmin a simile. He says, suppose that uh, you know, you were, I were to give you a gift. You could accept the gift or you could reject the gift. And he said, so too, you've given me the gift of harsh speech, but I reject it you can have your harsh speech back. And what he means by that is he didn't give him some harsh speech back, he didn't lay a smack down on him or anything, but he said the results of this harsh speech are on you. It's on you. It's your mind that has this anger, not my mind. I'm free from that. I don't have to deal with it. And so it's the same way with when we're approached with unwelcome speech. We don't have to, um, <clears throat> we don't have to run with it. You know, it's so easy. Someone speaks harshly to us, we speak harshly back to them. It's almost an instantaneous kind of thing if we're not careful, if we're not mindful. 
And all that's doing is just, we're both kind of, you know, a toilet when it goes down and swirls down. It's like a person's trying to throw us in the toilet along with them and we're deciding to hop right on in with them and we all end up in the sewer and then we can have our fight down there or something. <laughs> so we don't want to do that. We want to stay, um, you know, in a, a good position, in a happy position. But to do that requires us to really make the commitment to maintain proper speech. Oh dear. Um, <laughs> and, and the other ones, right action, again, I've, as I mentioned, I think that's fairly straightforward. There's three aspects to that, abstaining from taking life, that includes any life, insects, unwelcome, unliked creatures, mosquitoes. You think about it, it's kind of funny. I don't like you, so I'm going to deny you your existence. It's a very cruel thing, in fact. The mosquitoes didn't ask to be mosquitoes. I don't think they would have chosen that, but there they are. That's their, their karma. And so we have to, you know, respect that. There's also abstaining from stealing. You know, this is quite a clear and obvious thing. You think about putting yourself in the person's shoes. Would I want to be stolen from? And the answer is no, because people like their things. They like having their things. They like security. And doing that just simply denies them of that and brings them suffering. Never mind the fact that we'll get caught and go to jail and it's hard to meditate in jail. So we don't want to do that. And then also there's abstaining from sexual misconduct. So this refers to, you know, if we have a partner being faithful to a partner, um, having consensual sexual relations, so not committing abuse and rape and such things, and also not um, getting involved with people who aren't let's say, ready for that kind of thing, i.e. being involved with minors and so on and so forth. So these things, as you can imagine, again, if we're going to be sexually active, we have to ensure that we're not doing it in ways that are harming other people. And of course, if you want to take the precept like you've done for this retreat, the precept against sexual relations at all, well, then you've uh, removed that question entirely. So if you want to do that, you can go right ahead too. And then finally, there's right livelihood. The Buddha gave five kinds of wrong livelihood for people, um, lay people. That's dealing in weapons, dealing in humans, like you know slavery or running a prostitution ring or something. Um, dealing in meat, like uh, being a butcher. Dealing in intoxicants, so selling alcohol, selling drugs. And dealing in poisons. More broadly, we could say that if our livelihood, if our occupation is directly harming people, then we can call that wrong livelihood. Now, inevitably, at the Q&As, whenever anyone speaks about right livelihood, we get questions like, is occupation so-and-so right livelihood or wrong livelihood? They you know, give their entire resume and job history and ask, is this right livelihood? But it's always so situational, and the Buddha only gave these five examples. So for anything else, we have to use our own discretion. The first and most important thing, of course, is can you live with yourself with what you're doing? You know, can you go home at night and say, you know, I didn't harm people today. I wasn't malicious, I wasn't cruel to people because of the work that I do. Did the work that I do have an um, you know, extremely detrimental effect on other people? so on and so forth. Suffice to say, if we're ridden with guilt because of our occupation, we need a change of occupation. Otherwise, how are we going to find any peace if we keep doing these 
occupations that are unwholesome, that are unskillful, that lead to harm and harm to others. Um, so then beyond that then, of course, you could kind of divide it into two categories further. The idea of a livelihood that's very neutral, like, oh, it's not really harming anyone, it's not really helping anyone either, just kind of a job, kind of a mundane thing. Well, that's perfectly fine too. You're not harming anyone, and so that's a perfectly fine thing to do. Some people are fortunate enough where they're in a line of work where they are, in fact, helping people. And for such people, you know, it's a great opportunity to develop um, goodwill and compassion because they're doing things and they're asked to do things in their occupation that kind of naturally give rise to wholesome states. And so if one's in that kind of occupation, they should really treasure that. That's a really good, unfortunate thing to have. Or if you're you know, still trying to decide that, it's even something that one can consider when they're trying to choose a career path and so on. So anyway, with virtue, virtuous behavior set up and established, we move on to trying to understand them, trying to practice the Dhamma, trying to put in the effort that's needed to practice the Dhamma. And Venerable Jayasara will speak on the remainder of the Noble Eightfold Path, supported by these first five factors in the Dhamma talk tomorrow. So thank you everyone for listening. And if you have any questions or anything, um, I'll be answering those tonight in the same way as before. So thank you. So go ahead and take a short break and uh, you can come back for practice.